Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about For Your Eyes Only, starring Roger Moore, Julian Glover, Carol Bouquet, Topol, Lynn Holly Johnson, and directed by John Glenn. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Arnie, the co-host of Now Playing, who podcasts for your ears only. And this is the first James Bond movie of the 1980s, starting us off on a whole new decade for 007. And starting me off in a new place, this is the very first James Bond movie I ever saw in theaters. And I remember going to it. I was very excited. I had been watching all of the Bond things on TV. It was a big deal to finally see him on the big, big screen, and I loved it. I don't know that I've even seen For Your Eyes Only since 1981 summer, but I had a blast when I saw it back then. I didn't see this in theaters, but it does mark my first awareness of James Bond at all. I was six when this came out. It's the first time I'd ever heard of James Bond. I started getting into movies, yes, at six. I was watching Solid Gold on TV, and Sheena Easton came on and did For Your Eyes Only, and so I was familiar with that and the song. I didn't see this movie until the 90s, but it is the beginning of my association with James Bond. And this is the James Bond movie I was not allowed to watch. We had already started watching Moonraker, and this one was on cable. I could still see the picture of the cable guy that came in the mail with Roger Moore on the side of the cliff because they were announcing this was on cable that month. But my parents told me that when they saw it, I was not old enough to watch it because of the tone of the movie, but I was allowed to watch Octopussy and everything's beyond there. So this was like forbidden fruit for me for a few years until I was allowed to actually see this one. So it wasn't for your eyes only. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, exactly. It was classified. <laughs> you know, oddly enough, though, I see their point. I almost hear skids, right? I think they realized with Moonraker they had gone too far. And I really feel like this one is, yeah, let's change the tone up. We're entering a new decade. We kind of got a little crazy. Our Coke dealer is in jail, and we <laughs> need to just pull it together and maybe make a bond that Connery would have done. Well, I was wondering how long we're going to go into this podcast before someone said Connery. But you're absolutely right. They did intentionally change the tone up because of what you just said, how far they went. They knew they couldn't top it. They wanted to come back down to earth, literally. And they decided to not only try to harken back to the Connery days a little bit, but also back to Fleming. They went back to the books, got two short story plots in here. And as I mentioned in an earlier podcast, a scene from Live and Let Die and a scene from the novel of Goldfinger. And I think the intensity is something that this director brings to it on purpose. He's going to direct the next four as well. And we'll see the definitely change in intensity going into the 1980s. Well, I'm up for it. So let's get into it. Arnie, got the plot? No. No, I don't. <laughs> I think you said this came from two short stories, right, Brock? It sure did. It came from Risico, and it came from the actual story For Your Eyes Only, two of the plot points there. It does feel like there might be two different stories going on here that I'm not always sure connect, but I see both plots. I see the plots, but trying to put some of the details together for a summary, especially from the second hour, gets a little dicey. So I just had to be vague when I say... The movie starts with Blofeld's return, but after some remote control helicopter hijinks, we get to the main plot. A British ship that was spying on the Russians was sunk by a mine, and the crew is killed before the self-destruct can be activated, leaving the automatic targeting attack communicator computer intact. 
If the Russians got that, they could trick British warships into targeting each other with ballistic missiles, much like Bond did in The Spy Who Loved Me. So Bond must retrieve this computer before the Russians do. Finding the ship isn't easy, and the Brits first hired a marine archaeologist to do it, but the archaeologist is killed by a Cuban hitman. Bond investigates the hitman and meets the archaeologist's daughter, Melina Havelock, and the two end up discovering the hitman was hired by Eris Christados, who was working for the KGB to get the computer. Bond and Melina eventually get the computer, but when they reach the surface, Christados' men are waiting and take it. So Bond and Melina, accompanied by Christados' former partner in crime, Milos Colombo, and his men, go after Christados in his mountaintop fortress. Bond climbs the mountain and attacks from the top, while the rest use the stairs and a big fight occurs. Christados is killed and Bond retrieves the computer, but Russian General Gogol arrives to take it. Bond throws the machine off the mountain, destroying it, and Gogol stops his man from killing the British agent, who then goes off to have a romantic dalliance with Melina while dodging a call from Margaret Thatcher as credits roll. <laughs> I love how a basket turns into stairs in your telling of the story. But yes, so you brought up the return of Blofeld in the beginning of this movie. I was it Blofeld? Was it Dr. Evil? It was a bald guy in a gray suit who's apparently crippled. Well, yeah, technically speaking, he is a Blofeld type. He is not actually Blofeld. They don't actually name him on purpose. And the idea, again, was to bring it back down. So what they did was they opened the movie up, reminding us of Tracy and then having Blofeld. But it's not really Blofeld because they don't have the rights to Blofeld. But if you notice the cat in the Nehru shoot and the bald head, that's all movie Blofeld. That's not actual book Blofeld. They're kind of in a gray area if you don't call him Blofeld kind of thing. That's the official version of what they're trying to do here. I didn't think it was vague at all. It was Blofeld. It had the cat. Was... I thought I even saw Donald Pleasance when I first saw this. In my mind's eye, I thought Pleasance came back for this bit, but he didn't. It's just some dude. Right. My idea of what really is going on here is that they just got finished another round of lawsuits with Kevin McClory, the guy who owns the rights to Thunderball. And by throwing Blofeld down a shaft, they're giving him the shaft. I think they're telling him, we're done with you, and this is baloney, we don't need you anymore, we're going to move on now. And I think Kevin McClory, he, he responds to that in kind in a couple of years, if you know what I mean. Well, we'll be getting to that one in a couple podcasts, actually. Well, it was just confusing to me, because we've seen Blofeld die a couple of times, but really dead once. That last time when his sub exploded. We hadn't heard word one of Spectre since Connery left. He really feels like a relic of a Bond era gone past. And so to bring him back for this opening was confusing because it didn't feel like they had a dangling thread they needed to cut. And having him there in this weird manner where we're not going to show his face, this odd blocking and framing and the weird voice and just to literally pick him up on the foot of a helicopter and drop him down the shaft. It was confusing to me if it was for those meta reasons you mentioned, Brock. Great, it hurts the film and it hurts the franchise, but you got to give that dude the finger. Good for you. If it was for any other reason, though, the only thing I could think of, because I didn't think Connery when I was watching this, because we're heavily into the Moore era, but now that you guys have mentioned Connery, maybe they put him there to try to hearken back to the days of Connery since Blofeld was Connery's nemesis. Of course that's what they did, and it works very well. I totally disagree with you, Arnie. This opening is aces. I have been waiting for this moment. I think anyone that enjoyed On Her Majesty's Secret Service has been waiting for this loop to be closed, and Diamonds Are Forever did not do it. Now, Spy Who Loved Me did drop a passing mention to Teresa Bond, but here they fully close that storyline. We start at the grave, and we end with the man that put her in that grave being killed. I loved it. I was cheering. Yeah, and also, this is the On Her Majesty's Secret Service Blofeld with his neck broken from the end fight when he was in the car doing the drive-by he had that thing on his neck they're completely ignoring diamonds are forever blofeld me too yes what i found strange was that tracy was buried in london if you want to get technical about it you would think she'd be married where her dad buried her in italy or something portugal you know considering they're married for one day <laughs> hours <laughs> i don't know why he got upset at all hell just go marry money penny <laughs> 
I enjoyed the scene too. I kind of didn't like some of the one-liners, the delicatessen line, kind of an eye roll, but I did enjoy most of what was going on. I loved the stunt work, and I thought it was a fun little scene. Do not misinterpret me. I liked the action of the scene, but I just was head-scratching, and I was more distracted by the blocking of Blofeld's face than I was anything else. But it's really good action. It's better than anything we've seen more do. It is a good action scene with all the helicopter stuff. It's just, had it been somebody other than Blofeld, I would have just said, wonderful scene, great pre-credits introduction to bring us back to Bond. By throwing Blofeld in, in the way they do, is what distracted me. You know what distracted me? Sheena Easton! (laughs) When we get to the credits, this is a first of some kind. The singer of the song is actually in the opening credits. Is it just because she's hot? Was that the thought? We can't do Shirley Bassey. She's been eating too many carbs. Why does Sheena get the spotlight and Shirley got the shunt? Because exactly what you just said. They thought she was hot. Was she hot at the time? I mean, obviously a very physically attractive woman, and we are at the dawn of the music video era, so maybe they were killing two birds with one stone. Maybe this doubled as a music video that might have played on MTV. But Sheena Easton, I never have understood this woman's career. One minute she's singing old 60s, take the morning train crap. The next minute she's talking about her sugar walls with Prince, and then she's working out at the gym. I have no idea what track Sheena is on at any given moment. She seems schizophrenic to me i never put that much thought into her career Stuart. but that <laughs> i think about this someone sings a song about sugar walls i want to think about what they're doing <laughs> i like her stuff i don't think about it too much but morning train strut there's good stuff here yeah this is a good song i like this song i like those two songs already mentioned I did forget about the arms of Orion until you just mentioned Prince from the Batman soundtrack, but... You Got the Look was her biggest Prince hit, but she definitely was banging him for a little bit there. But she's an awkward choice in the sense that I don't see that she has a brand or identity that pairs with Bond. She's just kind of generic to me. I guess that's my review of this song. I'm going to say this one's par for me. I can't say that I like it. I think it's a little wussy. I wish they had kind of gone with the original choice. You know, originally they were going to go Debbie Harry. They had asked Blondie to record For Your Eyes Only, but the problem is Blondie is a group. It isn't just Debbie Harry. And she says, my band comes or we don't do it. And they did record their own version of For Your Eyes Only. I think theirs is a little bit better of a song. It's a little bit more rocking. It's a little bit more in theme with what this movie is doing. This one, it's just a little too light rock for me. You know, Carly Simon, she knew how to bring the rock to the light rock. But this one kind of puts me to sleep. I love it. It's probably in my top five of all Bond songs. I with Arnie. I like this one. It's kind of nice. It, it has a spin in my head for, for weeks. It does turn into an earworm. I'll give you that. Every time <laughs> someone says For Your Eyes Only, I hear it in my head as this song, as these notes. It just has that power, which is not to give it the best of compliments. Just because it's addictive doesn't <laughs> necessarily mean that it's great. I mean, it's a memorable song, but I just don't think that it's a particularly striking one. Here's the thing is, I like soft rock from this era. It's what permeated the top 40s in the late 70s, early 80s, this soft, Manilow-ish type of song. And Brock railed against Thunderball. What the hell do these lyrics mean? It's a great title to work into a song and make it romantic as well as spy oriented so i think that she did a great job with this it's a song that has stood the test of time and lives on its own away from this movie what does it do some like contact lens commercials what what does this song do now (laughs) well i picked up a time life soft rock of the 70s and 80s collection and it was on there (laughs) okay all right i don't think this is a classic guys but i hear you it certainly is not going to be one of the worst and it is better than thunderball I put it right there with Diamonds Are Forever. Well, I disagree with that. Okay, so (laughs) we've covered that on Diamonds Are Forever. (laughs) But then we start with the boat at the beginning getting hit by a mine. And this is when I really felt the era. I'm like, we aren't that many years away from those disaster movies, are we? Airport and earthquake. Because I really felt it was a well-staged but hugely labored boat sinking scene. It's cool, but I'm having a little deja vu. Didn't we just watch this movie a couple weeks ago? Isn't this the setup for Spy Who Loved Me? It's also the setup for <laughs> for Russia with Love. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's the same kind of plot. It's the, the decoder that they have to go find. But Spy Who Loved Me specifically started with a British naval thing getting sunk. Or I guess they were kidnapped, but I felt like it was this exact same beginning. But you're right. What we're saying here is that things are coming back, that they may be out of fresh original things to do now, and we're now sort of re-splicing greatest hits into a new medley. Here's the thing that I decided with this, though. I certainly noticed this. But we have watched 15 years of James Bond films in less than 15 weeks So these things are going to really cry out to us, and I think as now playing, we definitely need to call them out, but I'm not going to let them bother me, because I'm just going to look at how each one was executed and realize, especially with these early ones, before the age of video, this one too was still just before the age of home video, and if they can take a classic and reinvent it or do it better or just use it well, I'm going to go with that because it's what makes this James Bond iconography. Bond is formulaic, but are they using the formula well or aren't they? So I'm up for some greatest hits with more modern technology. This is a much better boat sinking effect scene. This felt really real versus what we saw before where the submarine was eaten by the larger model. Well, Arnie, I'm very happy to hear you say that. I think he's absolutely right. I think everything here we may have seen before, but it's done in a great way. I also do like, though, that the boat sinks at this time in the movie, we think accidentally. And they really don't tell you that blatantly in the movie either. You have to either notice it or you don't. Technically speaking, you could watch this movie a couple of times and not realize that the boat was sunk on purpose. It could just be a big mistake. Yeah, let's talk about that. Because that's a big part of the first half of this movie, is where did the ship go down? Now, my presumption is, if somebody put the sea mine out there to sink it, they can't be that far from where the ship actually sinks. Why do we spend an hour trying to find where this ship is? I think we spend an hour with Bond's people trying to find where it is, and the other side trying to stop them from getting there first. I don't think the other side knows either, necessarily. I think that it's pretty confused all the way around, and I can't answer that other than I bet they didn't put just one mine out there. I'm guessing they mined the whole thing. We see mines come back into it later on. There are more mines out there, and this is not current technology. They're not going to get a text message on their iPhone, you have exploded a mine. (laughs) So they just have to kind of guess when it went down and then try to figure out which mine it was. Now, I imagine that the Russians have a much more finite search area, but then again, the British should know what course it was on. You wouldn't need a marine archaeologist, which, strangely enough, was what I wanted to be when I was five. (laughs) I want to be a marine archaeologist. What the hell does that mean? I noticed this about Bond. At this point, they always have sort of a garbled first mystery just to get things rolling. Sinking a boat and having it being a mystery about where it went down is cool, even though it ultimately has nothing to do with the real plot the second half of the movie. And I'm starting to forgive these things. I understand that's how they write these. And it's really formulaic. The same writer is the same ones as the last time. They keep bringing Richard Maybaum back, and he really has turned this into an assembly line. I mean, they just start to feel like the same movie here. And I'm not saying that's a complaint. It's just I feel it at this point. It really does feel like an old, comfortable jacket that you're putting on again that kind of smells. But but, but, <laughs> but it's your favorite jacket. I mean, you know, kind of both. I'm getting both of it. I'm like, this is really creaky and old. But at the same time, eh, I feel good in it. Kind of like Roger Moore. He's kind of creaky and old, but I feel good with him. I'm totally with you on that. I remembered Moore being geriatric, but hey, if this is the worst that it gets, I think he's still pretty good here. He's still got some fire here. They're catering to what he is able to do, and I think he does it well. This is the first time I really felt Moore's age. It's the first time he looked old to me. Like you had mentioned, he was around the same age as Connery when he took over the role from Connery. So 
it was a continuing, but now we're 15 years into Bond's life. I'm sure when we get to Never Say Never Again, Sean Connery won't be looking as spry either. Mm. But there's the crow's feet, there's the gaunt neck, there's all the telltale signs of a man who's going down the other side of that hill. Yes, but he does hide it pretty well with his action scenes and the stunt work. It's not helping him that he has Melina and the blonde girl looking so young next to him. In those scenes, he definitely looks old. But when he's talking to Julian Glover or he's in other scenes like that, he doesn't look as old as he probably should or maybe will in future Bonds. Agreed. It's not a problem for me here. I noticed it, but it's not a problem at all. The worst one for me was the ice skater. That's when I started hearing Kesha's dinosaur in my head. That was a little bit creepy. I recognize this woman. Did you ever see Ice Castles? Yes. Yes, I did. Another great light rock song, by the way. (laughs) It is. It is. And yes, the girl that goes blind and trips over the roses. I saw this as a kid. Tears in my eyes. I didn't know she had another film, but here she pops up. BB doll. She's also in The Watcher in the Woods, a Disney movie. And thanks for spoiling Ice Castles for me, Stuart. (laughs) I don't know if I agree with you, Stuart, though. A minute ago, you said that the beginning of this movie has not much to do with the end of the movie. And obviously, the ATAC is a MacGuffin, right? Yeah. But I think the whole thing with the mystery of Christatos and the whole thing, it's directly tied into the mystery of the movie, right? So... How do you say it's not tied in? I'm a little confused by that. Obviously, when they find the boat, it's a race to get to where the boat is. I just don't see that, that what that has to do with the rivalry between the two revolutionaries. I definitely feel like the second half is about two old foes and Bond caught in the middle. And this first half is a mystery about let's raise the Titanic. I mean, that kind of thing. They feel like two different films to me. I completely agree. And I like this first one a lot more. It's very straightforward. You've got your MacGuffin. You've got Bond. He's going from place to place and trying to follow these various people. I like the Cuban assassin. I like the shooting on the boat. This mystery hooked me. And I am with him. This is something that Bond doesn't do in these previous movies very well, is get me on a mystery. I think the last time I was really hooked into the mystery was Live and Let Die, when I didn't know who Mr. Big was. (laughs) But... You were the only one who didn't know Mr. Big. You told me that then, too! I know. (laughs) But here, I'm with Bond again, trying to figure all of this out, because I only know what he does. I thought that the mine was an accident. And that he was just racing against the Russians. I assume the Russians hired the Cubans. I mean, those communists stick together. But I was with him on all of this. And I love the way it goes to that decadent mansion. It's almost like a sparsely populated Playboy Mansion grotto where the hitman is. And I love how they introduce Melina Havelock. She is a tough broad. She is there to kill her parents' assassins. And I'm like, yes, a Bond woman on Bond's level. She is lethal. She got there on her own. She investigated it on her own. She's not just a tag-along. I'm liking her. I'm with you on Melina. This is the second time we've been given this kind of Bond girl, that this is the same thing that we had a couple weeks ago with Spy Who Loved Me. But the difference is, one... Melina, this actress, Carol Bouquet, does not have to be funny. And I think that was, for me, a real problem with Spy Who Loved Me, that off-comic timing that she had. And two, I just think that she's more charismatic. I mean, I've seen her in other movies. She did a French film called Red Lights. She was in a Bunuel movie. I've seen her before. She can act. She's a working actress. I was just more captivated with her screen presence than Barbara Bach. And I like her because she doesn't look like a blow-up doll. I mean, don't get me wrong, I think the Bond girls have been really hot, but here, she doesn't look like a bimbo. She looks intelligent, they didn't doll her up, they let her have very practical hairstyle, she's still really attractive, but she's just looking like she's out to kill, not out to look like she's dressed to kill. Let's be very clear here, she's very hot. I said she is, Okay, okay. but they're just not whoring her up. Right, and I don't think that hairstyle is practical at all. That thing is long. She's playing with it the entire time, the entire movie. Every time she tries to convey a little bit of emotion, she plays with her hair. But that's beside the point. That's me seeing the movie a thousand times for me to notice that. 
I agree with both of you. I think she's a solid actress. I think she has an amazing screen presence. I think she's gorgeous. I love when the camera moves in on her eyes, when she gets revenge in her eyes. I love a lot of stuff she does in this movie. And I don't think she's an equal to Bond. I see what you're saying, that you know she certainly gets there on her own and she's scrappy. I'll give her that. But I think she's a little outclassed. And while she does save Bond's butt at the poolside thing, I think we quickly learn that Bond needs to help her along. But she did get very far on her own. You have to give her props for that. Yeah, when standing in Bond's shadow, nobody looks as good. But I'm talking specifically about how she's introduced. She's introduced saving Bond's ass. Other than when we see her on the boat and her parents are killed. Right. But when she's introduced as part of the actual plot that we understand. Sure. Also, I'm going with the humor of this much more. I mean, we talked both the past two weeks about how broad the humor was and just looked like it should be staring at us, get a rim shot, and adios mio. But here, I actually laughed out loud when the henchman goes up to the car and it says anti-theft system, and he smashes the window and it blows up the car, killing him. Yeah, you know what else I like about the humor in that scene, Arnie, is that in that scene, when they're driving, Bond does make a one-liner. He turns to Melina and says, I love a drive in the country, don't you? And she laughs. And that is the right time to have that kind of joke. They don't do ten of them. They do one. And it made me laugh again. And I really enjoy the entire humor of the scene and a great action scene on top of it. Well, I'd have to say that I wouldn't call that a one-liner. I'd call it a joke, and it is a one-line joke. But the typical Bond one-liners would be the car rolls end over end, and he goes, I like shaken, not stirred, or something like that. You know, reacting to that, just saying drive in the country, that's just... Showing that Bond's a cool cat, you know? He's not gonna get upset by this. And she laughs because of the irony of the line and the situation, but it's not, he should have quit while he was ahead after you get beheaded. Yeah, the puns are toned down a little bit. Look, I'm really gun-shy after the last couple more movies. I'll be honest. When they gear up for an action scene, I'm kind of bracing for some, it to go off the rails, frankly. I mean, they do go off the road, but I mean, really, <laughs> uh, metaphorically, I'm waiting for this movie to fail me the way that the last couple have when they go big here. But you're right. I'm liking these scenes, and I'm starting to breathe again. I'm starting to have some relief. I mean, I was terrified when they drive through a village, and I'm like, they're going to drive through a fruit cart. I know they're going to drive through a fruit stand. They've got to do that, and then some immigrant will come out and shake his fist and blah, 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 blah. But they don't. They do just enough with the locals and this car chase, but without going that extra step, without having those kind of Jaws moments where you just groan. I mean, I didn't groan during this movie, and that is a Big, solid improvement. Well, good. I did groan just a little bit at how Bond's little piece of shit car can take all that abuse and keep on trucking and all the henchmen's cars, the slightest accident and they're gone. But (laughs) I'll give it. It Maybe the yellow car, was it a Volkswagen? Maybe they sponsored the film. I'll tell you one thing that I'm not liking, something that I'm feeling that I'm missing from previous Bond movies. Who the hell is doing this score? Bill Conti? What the hell? Disco is dead. Didn't you get the memo? Disco died two years ago. What is this crap Euro trash pop score that is going with this movie? This is hands down the worst score that has ever accompanied a Bond movie. I love this score. (laughs) I'm listening to it, and I am thinking it's a couple years late, but man, is it fun. The way they take the James Bond theme and just synth it up. How great is that? This is the score that I'm thinking could just be a whole lot of fun for the time. Now, I do understand a purist might hate this the way I hated it when in Beverly Hills Cop 3 they took Axel F and made it sound like the MIDI score from Double Dragon to make it more 90s. You may not like what they've done to the score to make it more 80s, even though it's really more 70s. It's not 80s, yeah. It's behind the times. (laughs) Well, 81, it's on the cusp. That sound was still very in. It was in on television because those shows from the 70s were still on in the 80s, Charlie's Angels theme and all of that. No, I'm having a good time with the score. It is a little distracting. It doesn't stand the test of time. But as someone who remembers that era well, it was hitting a sweet spot for me. I have to say, I hated most of the music in this. It really drove me crazy. I love the Bond theme, a little bit discoed up here and there, but I found it too bombastic. It got in the way. It made itself noticed. And while you can do that now and then, there's a couple of times it was great, like at the scene later on with the chase, 
with the car on the end of the cliff. They have a big crescendo there with a trumpet. Here and there it works great. When they have a, just a medley of the song tenderly when they're swimming underwater, it works nicely there. But the big, big loud stuff, it got me after a while. I really wish it would stop and just maybe just play a Bond theme straight or something else. It, you should not notice the music that much unless it's the James Bond theme when he's doing something James Bondy. And what's shocking to me, this teen number of movies in, is how little they really do use that James Bond theme. We get it every movie when it starts, but I'm really surprised they don't trumpet it out, pardon the pun, every time he's doing something cool. They keep it in reserve and they keep it mixed up. In this movie, they did keep it the more disco-y version. And yeah, when they're mixing in the Four Your Eyes Only, which is something all the Bond movies are good about doing, is taking the theme song and merging it with the score. I like it then. And I... Like the rest of it, it is bombastic, it is distracting, but it's a style I like, what can I say? Sure, and that's John Barry's signature, that's what he brings to it, but I agree with Stuart, I think Bill Conti is no John Barry here, and when John Barry returns to the show, we'll definitely feel it. Thank God. But we talked at the beginning of this podcast about how this was a course correction from Moonraker. I started to feel the pendulum swung a bit too far the other way, because this movie really lacks gadgets. I love James Bond gadgets. And the closest thing we get here is that facial recognition computer, which was hysterical. I thought they were going to put bras on their head and hook up some (laughs) electrodes to some lightning and make it come alive. It was really bad. I am just guffawing when James is trying to give a police sketch description and they're doing it on this like Apple IIe. The identograph is something that has not aged well. What cracks me up about it is how it's labeled. (laughs) The room is labeled. And that this seemingly simple computer program, they cut to a woman coming in with coffee. Their jackets are off. It's like they've been there for three hours doing this thing when it took no time at all on the screen. It's definitely a dated scene. Absolutely. And Q giving, like, the different mouths and the Pinocchio nose. I felt bad for that woman bringing in coffee because when we came in, she was doing scientific experiments. And now she's relegated down to bringing coffee to these two. (laughs) Did you see Jeremy Bullock in there? He's back? He's the one in the arm cast. He's Smithers. How's the arm, Smithers? Whack. That's Boba Fett. He'll tell you that if you read his autobiography. And he'll sign a picture of him like that for 25 bucks. I'm with you, Arnie. I wish he had a little bit more things to play with. A lot of things blow up in this one. I feel like they really had a good TNT budget because the car explodes. There's a lot of things that blow up real good. All of the stunts are really, really great. But you're right. There aren't really any cool trinkets. I don't feel like Bond gets to do anything with his gear this time. And this identograph is, yeah, it's silly. He has no gear in his pockets whatsoever. That's what she said. But... You know, you you talk about the explosions. What I got a real vibe off this one when I was watching, because there's a lot of chase scenes in this. And there's so many, be them on skis or be them on cars. I kept thinking chips. And on chips, a car hits a pothole and it explodes. So I think that they were just trying to keep up with the TV action of the day. And that's the vibe I got. Well, this is better than TV action. They have some really, really good stunt work here. I think all of the big flourish chase scenes have at least a moment or two that's as good as the car corkscrew from a couple films ago. I mean, they definitely are outpacing chips, Arnie. That's a little unfair. But yes, why they must make everything explode, maybe that is a convention of chase scenes of the era. I agree with you. One stunt in the ski chase when Bond does like this jump and spins and disarms a guy all in one move awesome yeah that's the one part of that scene you thought was awesome you didn't think the table crashing over the table was awesome or the entire time when he was pinned down by the sniper that was a pretty cool intense scene i thought that chase scene for the skiing was just fantastic the entire thing my high point of the entire film's chases was that ski jump okay does eric kriegler get the gold for this or does he get like platinum because he's assassinating a man while he's competing in the Olympics. I really think that's impressive. Even though he doesn't kill Bond, I really want him to place first. (laughs) I thought it was really funny how he could shoot all those little targets from so far away, but he couldn't shoot Bond from, like, ten feet. (laughs) Yeah. And this is kind of a fun throwback to Robert Shaw. I was getting a little bit of Red Grant here with this blonde Superman, German. 
Yeah, we said the, the humor in this is more subtle. You know, in the ski chase, they had that guy with the glass again from the third time in a row. But the difference here is they don't linger on him. They actually show him with the glass and cut away quickly. And I think that's one of the key things about this movie is it understands the humor more and is able to weave it in stronger, which is why it works. And I just wanted to point it out here as a great example of, again, when they did that. Yeah. The first half really feels loaded with some great chases here. Arnie, you say you like this first half more than the second half. I don't know that I agree. I think I actually want the movie they're getting to, but I think it's an awkward transition. I think all the stuff that happens in Italy is like a weird mix of chases that I don't understand why is happening and set up to find this other guy. I don't even know what connection Locke has with the two guys we're going to eventually get to. I want to get to what I suspect to be is an entirely different story, which is that we have these two people who are both trying to play Bond to kill the other. Columbo and Christatos. And that is a confusing transition. And it's right about the time of the ski chase that the story to me starts to lose cohesion because we get this... Third, I guess we can't really call her the Bond girl because she never sleeps with Bond, but BB Doll, who's named like a perfect Bond girl, who Bond hits on, and I can never tell exactly what her role in this whole thing is. She seems to flirt with him, then she sets him up with hockey assassins, which was a little Moonraker for me, honestly. Well, she didn't know that. She didn't know that she was setting up. She's the innocent here. She really didn't? I thought she knew that she was setting him up to be hockey assassinated. No, I believe her coach did. She had no idea. I don't think this woman could put two and two together. I mean, I really think she does not have much of a brain. And that's how they play her. You say Bond's hitting on her. I don't see that. He's like, how about you put your clothes on and I'll buy you an ice cream. He knows this girl is too young for him. He's not into this. She's the one that wants to sleep with him. Right, but at the hockey scene, he understands the girl has a crush on him, and after the whole ski chase, he goes there to get information off of her and does play up the flirtation to get that information. But you're right, in the first scene when we see her, that ice cream line makes me laugh every single time. Yeah. But Arnie's right in this scene, he does play that up to get information. The hockey goon thing just seems weird and out of place for these three guys all of a sudden to attack Bond in a scene as, as over as quickly as it starts. I just went to one of Stewart's favorites, the Warriors. Here's the hockey gang. Yeah, not yeah. nearly as good. I see where you're going here, but I think you're right, Arnie. Here is where there is a cohesion, a transference of what they want to do and what they've been doing. It's just, it's all kind of muddled. We have people that don't live up to their fullest. I mean, I think we get the absolute worst ally that Bond will ever have, Ferrara. I'm not sure that he does one thing for Bond before he gets his throat slit in the car. This whole thing about finding Locke, the Belgian assassin, doesn't really pay out. I don't care about him. I'm actually happy when we finally get to Corfu and we find out that there's these two guys and that Christados is schooling Bond on... Columbo being the bad guy. I mean, I fell for this. I really thought that Topol was our big villain this time and that Christados was our ally. I was confused because the previous Bond films, with the possible exception of From Russia with Love, hadn't been smart enough to try to play me. So when he's with the guy he's been pursuing this whole time and talking about a third party, and then when he goes off with Von Scheif, she's got to be the least useful Bond girl ever. It's just this, he needs to sleep with somebody, we're about halfway through the movie, we're going to introduce someone, have him sleep with her, and kill her within five minutes. Let me see if I understand what she is. She's there to dig information on Bond, and she knows that Bond believes that her man, Columbo, is the bad guy, and she says nothing? Yeah, this is crystal clear to me, guys. I'm not having the confusion you're having. It could be because I've seen the movie 20 times, but to me, it plays great. I think all sides of the movie connect together. I do understand how you guys think it's two disparate things and how you don't think it gels. I'm with the movie 100%. What's going on here is that the table scene, this is the first time that Bond has done this that they have a guy we think is an ally who turns out to be a villain. And it works great here. And what this scene at the table is about is that they're staging this so Columbo can get Bond by himself to tell him the real deal. They're playing each other very well. It's like a chess match. Cristados thinks he's getting one over on Bond. Bond thinks he's getting one over on Columbo. But Columbo is really getting one over on Bond. It's three people that are very smart and think they know what they're doing trying to play one another. I think it's really a fun little game that the audience gets to take along with this character that who is really the villain, who is really the friend. 
I think that plays great. I don't think the Contessa plays well into it. I think she's a confusing fourth element floating around in all of this. Yeah, I'm with Stuart. Because the focus of this movie has been so much on Bond, and I really did think BB would have a bigger part, that when this comes, it's just, again, as somebody watching this movie for the first time and knowing nothing, it's a confusing turn of events. When Bond is sleeping with Contessa, I start to get a little fuzzy on who the allies and enemies are, which is intentional to a degree, but it's not even done in such a way that really drives home that we fooled you who the bad guy was. And it doesn't carry on after we know the surprise either. I'm confused as to why Columbo stays involved with the story, why he would care what Bond is going to do about Cristados. I think... He is trying to prove to Bond that he's right, so what he does is they stage the raid on the heroin warehouse because he wants to prove to Bond that I am not the villain that you're looking for. He does admit to being a villain. He does everything else but smuggle drugs. I wish that there had been some way that we could have learned more about where their relationship went sour. I think it's really, really cool that we have these two kind of bad guys. They're both kind of bad guys. We like one more than the other, but that they're both pitting Bond against each other. I think that's really cool. I think it's underexploited here. I could have spent more time in the second movie. I feel like there's a really good one here that doesn't reach its full potential, but I am liking the second half of the movie. Well, let me say that I agree with you. Had this been more explored, had you taken the last half hour that we spent at the ski lodge and instead spent it really fleshing out these characters and giving us that motivation and showing us that backstory and things, I would totally go with it. The reason I say I like the first hour better is because it is mostly action. It is point A to point B to point C and everything's going. When it starts to get more intricate in the second hour i don't feel it does it entirely successfully so i might have liked the what you call the second movie here better had they done less of the first one and done the second one a little bit cleaner and a little bit better so that i really could connect with these two bad guys instead of just trying to keep track of who was which at which time. Yeah, because these guys are both good actors, and I've seen them in things before. I mean, Topol was in Fiddler on the Roof, and this other guy, all right, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but I was a big Doctor Who geek at the time, and he was in one that had Tom Baker in it called City of Death that I really liked. So I knew who these guys were at the time that I was watching the movie back in theaters. I think they both got real presence here. I think that they could have carried more weight on their shoulders than this movie lets them. Well, you know, he's the villain in the third Indiana Jones movie, and he's General Veers in Empire Strikes Back. And probably mentioned, now that we're mentioning people, Charles Dance is one of the villains here on the beach. I did not recognize him, but I, of course, know Charles Dance, my good dear brother Noopsie, and, of course, the guy with the fake eye from Last Action Hero. Oh, wait, we haven't reviewed Last Action Hero yet. Never. No. <laughs> it's there with Wishmaster, huh? Have you guys ever seen Kentucky Fried Movie, and they have this thing about, if you're a Gemini, expect the unexpected today, and they get shot with an arrow? When he gets shot by an arrow every single time, because it comes out of the blue, he gets shot by the arrow, I always think of Kentucky Fried Movie. <laughs> I have seen that once, and I never think about it, but okay, I hear ya. Charles Dance, he's kind of got the Sid Haig role here that you know, Sid Haig had in Diamonds Are Forever. He doesn't really do anything at all, but because he would go on to have a notable career, we pay attention to him here more than probably he deserves. And Jeremy Bullock, too, for that matter. <laughs> and General Veers. These Star Wars people, I'm like, huh? If it ain't Harrison Ford, I don't know. Well, one of my favorite scenes comes right here in the movie was when Bond on foot chases after... Locke in the car is trying to escape from that warehouse scene. Bond's running up the stairs and there's no music. Thank God, Bale Conti, thank you for that decision. And he's running up the stairs as the car is driving away, and it's really well edited. And of course, Bond gets the car to get on the precipice of the cliff. And Bond throws the pin in that Ferreira had in his hand when he was had his throat slit, and then Bond kicks the car off the side of the cliff. And I love this entire sequence with the stairs, with Bond aiming his gun and the camera rushes in on him as he shoots the gun and of course the kicking of the car they filmed it twice because as many fans have brought up since roger moore's james bond isn't really that kind of james bond he doesn't really kill people that way and if he does kill people at all as we discussed earlier he doesn't really do a lot of that killing thing but i think it plays great here especially in the intensity of the movie i'm glad to see it i mean i kind of wanted him to go here the last couple movies have 
played too much into his comedy and not enough into this. I'd like to see him kind of bring it, you know? If he's going to get older, we don't want him to feel like he's not virile anymore. This movie reminds you he's still James Bond. He's still got it. I like this scene. I don't particularly like Locke. Is my only problem with it. I haven't cared about him as a henchman. I think all he's really done for most of this movie is sit around and drink coffee. He really didn't kill that many people, but for whatever it's worth, this is a good powerful scene. I only wish that I wanted the bad guy to get it as badly as Bond delivers it. I agree with you, Stuart. I thought it was a nice badass move, and I never really found more to be badass the way Connery was, and this does show a lethal side to him that we needed to see. Unfortunately, right after that is underwater scenes. And you know how you guys said there's a rule that if Bond goes to the state, the movie's going to suck? I think I'm coming to the point that if Bond puts on some scuba gear, Arnie's going to check out. (laughs) Well, let's see. Spy Who Loves Me and Thunderball, and we both did not recommend those. You're right. It isn't a good track record. (laughs) And here it is again, and by this point in the movie, and we're only 20 minutes into the second hour, I'm starting to realize that the movie's going places I just am not enjoying as much anymore. It's like after the car goes off the cliff, this movie feels like it screeches to a halt for me for about 40 minutes and doesn't pick up again till the climax. I dig the scenes. I like the underwater stuff. I don't, I'm not crazy about them, but I like it. I like the intensity of the danger of the fight underneath the water. See, I felt no intensity. It's something about the slowness of underwater scenes and the slowness of boats. It's this old joke about Speed 2 cruise control. I just don't find any of this riveting, exciting, fast-paced. It's not even bad for the time. It's just, to me, bad. No, really? I definitely don't think this stuff is bad. I don't think they do it as well as Thunderball, or rather I think Thunderball was staged in a more epic way. This is like one guy in a big diving helmet that comes after Molina and Bond as they go through the ship wreckage, and it's just not as exciting. I, I kind of hear what you're saying. I'm ready for this movie to get to a climax that I'm really going to care about, but they do do something cool here I was totally not expecting, and Brock, you mentioned Live and Let Die, the book. Well, over at Books and Nachos, i read that book and the best passage in it they do hear they didn't forget about it they didn't do it in the live and let die movie but in this one they take that really cool climax in which bond and the girl are tied up and dragged across coral and the whole idea is that what if they aren't ripped apart the sharks will finish them off i think that's a really evil way of taking somebody out i admire christados for being that diabolical here i like this stuff I love it, too. I'm eating it up. And it's really a fun scene. It's really well done. The editing is fantastic. What I don't understand is why he keeps going back and forth. He keeps stopping and then starting the boat. Is that because the coral is only in one place, Stuart? Or is that explained better in the book? It really wasn't explained much more in the book because he didn't get much opportunity to do it. But this boat is bigger than the speedboat. A speedboat could just keep going until they were done. But that boat's got a turn around. And yeah, that's what I took it, is that this is the place where it's shallow enough that they would actually hit coral. Got it. It's really an exciting scene, and I really like it. I like the concept of it, just didn't find it a really exciting scene. It may not be my favorite in the movie, but we're getting to that. I mean, at the time that I saw this in theaters, and now, when we finally do get to that climax, when we finally find out what the big bad lair is and where the fight is going to happen, man, I'm loving this mountaintop monastery like Columbo is loving his pistachios. I just think the rock climbing stuff, I am in heaven. I love this climax. Uh, I didn't like the rock climbing because, to me, it was obvious that Moore was two feet off the ground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's better than Kirk. I mean, uh, (laughs) and I went back to Kirk. I actually turned to Marjorie while watching this. He doesn't understand the gravity of his situation. But the rock climbing, I wanted it to be cooler than it was. I wanted to feel more suspense than I did when I was watching that scene. I understand that what they've done seems technically flawless, but I think... Just because of Moore's age, this is where it failed me. It was too obvious what was going on. It's obvious, but the stunt guys are earning their weight here. I mean, I just think when he falls and his foot's on that rope, forget that it's not Moore. I know it's not Moore. It's never Moore, but this is really good stuff. (laughs) It's like the Raven. Never Moore. Never Moore. The free fall is absolutely amazing, incredible stunt. The 400 feet fall was amazing. But I have to disagree with you, Arnie. I think Roger Moore sells... Him climbing on the cliff, 
pretty darn well. I think I see the tension in his eyes. I feel the intensity of the scene. I think he was just worried they were out of coffee at catering because I don't see anything else. It plays for me great. I think they edited it really well. Yes, I know what he's not on the cliff. I understand that too, but I think edited together, it really works. I will give total props to that huge drop. That drop, I hadn't been that concerned for a stunt guy since those skis were coming down on the parachuter. Same guy. (laughs) (laughs) I hope he is well paid. I hope he's still getting residual checks, and I hope he's still alive. (laughs) He's still alive. (laughs) This monastery, just the beauty of it. I mean, is this a real place? Was that Matt stuff? I couldn't tell, but I just loved it. I don't know what St. Cyril's really is, but it may be my favorite layer of all time. It may beat the volcano that Blofeld had, and you only live twice. The exterior shots are real. They did film the interiors at Pinewood Studios. Yeah, I kind of sensed that. I have to agree with you, Stuart. I do like this location for a base. It is up there. I don't know if it's as cool as in a volcano, but it is a nice thing. It's certainly unexpected, and it is a way to be hard to get to. You have to take a basket ride. (laughs) So if the climax of the movie that you liked, Arnie, isn't the cliff part, what climax did you like at the end? like the way that there's some stealth fighting going on with Bond and Columbo's men and Melina through there. I like how they kind of pay off BB's existence. She finally is rebelling against her benefactor who we're not sure if he wants her to get the gold or just to bend over for him. And I like the multifaceted play of this ending. I think it plays pretty well, too. I enjoyed it. My favorite parts of it is how it's filmed, like when he's fighting the Red Grant guy, the camera slowly pans up to Cristado stealing the ATAC. That kind of stuff was much more interesting to me than the actual fighting. The fighting scenes were fine. I do kind of dig how simple it is, just a simple fist fight to get to the end, as opposed to a giant big blowing up. It's a climbing up a cliff. It's sneaking around. It's fist fights to get to it, as opposed to a giant battle scene with a lot of people underwater or a giant battle scene in a volcano. I do like, though, even if the end doesn't feel good, I like that Gogol shows up in the field to get the ATAC, and Bond just basically throws his life away by throwing it off the cliff, because that Russian agent is going to shoot him. I don't know. What do we think about Gogol? He's kind of a strange figure. I guess because he's Russian, we're supposed to think of him as semi-bad just by the politics and the Cold War stereotypes of the day. But when he first came on in Spy Who Loved Me, I felt like he was semi-collaborative. And now, I I don't know. He laughs. You know, he he realizes this is all a game. You know, I think he gets that, oh, well, I'll get you next time. I mean, I didn't get the sense that it was a huge deal that he didn't get it. I also think that he's smart. The one guy wanted to shoot Bond for it, and Gogol's the one who realizes killing a double O agent of MI6 will probably create a bigger international incident. So, well played, good job, see you next time. Well, I don't know about that. They just probably disown him. MI6 isn't supposed to exist. But I get your point that it will cause more problems than he needs. I think him throwing his arms up like, yep, you don't got it, I don't got it, there you go. But I think it's a great kind of ending to the whole thing. We use the word MacGuffin a lot. This proves this whole thing was just for nothing. It, it doesn't really matter who gets it at the end. The, the matter of the movie is a story. Well, no, it matters if the Russians get it. That's what matters. you got to keep it out of the hands of the Russians. The British don't need it. They've got one in every boat. One in every Bond movie. Yeah, but... <laughs> But the ending is, it's kind of nice that they didn't shoot him anyway, and they let him go. Fine. I kind of like the ending of this. I think it, I don't know, it just feels right. I agree. I like that Melina gets it in, too. I mean, she is the one that lost her parents to this. She deserves to be able to take somebody out. And I think she's the one that delivers the death blow, isn't she? No, it's Columbo, which pissed me off. It's so anticlimactic that Melina wants to kill him, and Bond actually tries to stop her. He's forgotten that he kicked that car off the cliff a little while ago, I guess. And then Columbo has to come from behind and kill him. There could have been far better dramatic ways of doing it, or far more exciting. I thought they really came too soon on that one. Yo, the tension's not enough between Columbo and Cristados to feel like that means anything. Melina, it feels like it meant something. I don't know why I remembered that way. I guess it's I wanted her to have vengeance so much. This movie was really her movie. Bond gets vengeance at the beginning of this by getting Blofeld. She should have that moment here at the end. 
Right, and they don't really play up the relationship enough of those two characters, even though it's written. They don't really show it enough on the screen for it to make sense. Actually, Melina, since she doesn't get the revenge at the end of the movie, the last thing they really need her for is to get to the attack underwater. They actually could have probably killed her in the keel-hauling sequence, and she would not have been missed at the end here. Come on, she does have one other function. Bond has to sleep with somebody at the end of this, and BB's hooked up with Columbo, so it's gotta be her. And you gotta have him doing the nookie when Margaret Thatcher comes a calling. What the hell was that? <laughs> I couldn't believe they had Maggie on there. I couldn't believe they had Maggie at the end of this movie. You said before, Stuart, you didn't groan. This is where I groaned. How can you not? I didn't think this coda was needed. Well, you know, her election was landmark, and it would have been on people's mind at the time. She was a polarizing figure. I think that they've been getting tougher women. The fact that the Iron Lady was leading the country, it's worth a mention, I suppose. I'm not sure what the joke really is, ultimately. Are they lampooning her, or are they just laughing about the fact that she would come to congratulate him and hear a bird instead? That's the joke, yes. Yeah. The bird is talking to her. Yeah, I don't feel like it's particularly politically spiteful or anything. It's just kind of a joke like we've had in many of these more movies. But if there's a biting side to it, it's her husband coming in and looking right at the camera like a befuddled old man. Yes, absolutely. I'm sure there's a bit of commentary there, but on record... The joke is they think it's pretty funny to have Maggie Thatcher talking to a parrot. Yeah, it, it didn't bother me. I mean, I'm not going to champion it, but I didn't groan. I groaned. The whole different tone of this movie, to have that at the end of it, seemed a little weird. It's not like they had a scene like that in the middle also. Right. They had it at the very beginning, at the very end, and the main part of this movie had an intensity we haven't seen in a long time in a James Bond movie, and I just feel this thing feels out of place. Yeah, not yeah. only that, but Moonraker, you're not going to do a better sex joke than he's attempting re-entry. I mean, they ought to just let that joke die. So, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend, for your eyes only, Stuart... Yes, this is a recommend. This is the best Roger Moore movie we have seen, clearly. But what does that mean? I want to ask that. I want to quantify that. Because this is not one of the best James Bond movies. This is not From Russia With Love. This is not Goldfinger. You Only Live Twice. I think I liked On Her Majesty's Secret Service better. So what does that mean? I think it means there's not a lot of variance in the Roger Moore Bonds. He's the most consistent one. His highs are not that high. His lows are not that far apart, really. I don't feel like the distance between this movie and Moonraker is that exceptional. And I guess that's kind of a good thing. You know what you're going to get when you get a Roger Moore movie. This one is the toughest. And I think that's what I like about it, is that I want Bond to be tougher than Moore actually tends to want to go. And by limiting some of his more farcical stuff, the stuff that was really out of hand in Moonraker, it really allows him to shine. I think this is his best as well, even though he is getting a little bit old. You know, all the important elements work. When you've got cool locations and good stunt work and just all of the elements firing, I can ride it. We've still got a couple more to go, but I think this is going to be his peak here. And it's a recommend, although not the strongest, not one of the best of the series. But for more... This is a triumph. Arnie. It's funny how on Now Playing, we can agree so much and then get down to the end bit. And I'm like, who are you? What are you saying? You're speaking a foreign language to me. Because I think that miles separate this and Moonraker or The Spy Who Loved Me. Those were the pits. This one, though isn't aces. I still don't think this is as good as Live and Let Die. To me, so far, Moore's first out of the gate is still his best. And this one, I really had to struggle on recommend or not, because there's a lot of things I enjoyed, but that second hour really fell apart for me and became arduous. The first hour was so fleet, the second hour was such a slog. And by the time we got to the end, I was just happy to be getting to the end. But I checked the timer of how much time was left in this movie so often in that second hour. It was, oh, 40 minutes left. Oh, crap. 30 minutes left. Jesus, what are they going to do for 20 more minutes? Get up the mountain! <laughs> so I'm going to go weak, not recommend. What? Not what? recommend? I'm going to get, I'm going to give you a chance to say it one more time. Weak recommend, you mean? I'm going weak, not recommend. There's, there's good stuff in here, but I wanted to turn it off before it was done, and I can't recommend a movie that I don't want to sit through. I'll never watch it again, 
There's some good scenes. It's a mountain higher than where they've been, but Moore has some climbing still to do, and Moore himself needs to do it, not that stuntman. <laughs> well, good luck with that, Arnie. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think that's... <laughs> so, yeah, I'm going to have to give this one the red arrow, just barely. I had to fight about it. Was the first hour good enough to outweigh the second hour? And the answer is, if I want to turn it off, and the only reason I'm sticking it out is because I have to talk about it with you guys, that's a red arrow. I mean... Of the Bond girls, I liked Melina, but the other two don't really pay out. Of the villains, I didn't feel Kerstados really had much to make him memorable. Bond doesn't even get to kill him at the end. The lack of gadgets really hurt me. Some of the dated stuff really hurt this film for me. I mentioned the scene that I liked with the skis. That was the most impressive thing to me. So, not recommended. So it's for our eyes only, not Arnie's. Okay, great. This is a strong recommend for me. This is my favorite Roger Moore James Bond movie. I love this James Bond movie for a lot of the reasons we've already talked about. I love that it actually has a twisty plot. I love the stunt work in this movie. I love the action scenes. I think it's definitely directed. I love when we see Molina walking into the gun shop in the middle of an Olympic village. It's a gun shop. They pan to the right and they see wheels of the spiky motorcycles setting those up. I love when they get out of the sub that the guy who's doing the winch, you still only see his waist, and then he turns around, he's holding a gun, and then he pan over to the other guy with a gun, and then up to his face and see it's Cristados and his men. I love that kind of camera work in this movie. I think it's beautifully shot. I think the acting in this movie is strong almost throughout. It's not a perfect movie. There are certainly flaws in it. I think we discussed what the flaws are. But overall, I think this is just so much fun to watch. It's interesting to watch. It holds my interest the entire time. You know, we talked during Moonraker. Moonraker gets a bad rep because the first hour of it in certain scenes in the Moonraker beginning that are here in this movie, they just keep it going throughout the whole movie this time. I think that Roger Moore's showing us sides of Bond and bringing him into the 80s in a grand fashion. This is a fun movie for me, and I really recommend it. Check it out. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please join in the discussion with us. You can find a link to our forums at our homepage. You can also join us on Facebook. You can also follow us on Twitter. And if you're interested in Bond, you can hear Stuart and I over at Books and Nachos, where we're reviewing all of the Ian Fleming original James Bond novels. Yeah, Brock, you're the one that read these short stories. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about them. And there's only three days left to vote in what horror movie we are doing. Is it Cabin in the Woods, Trick or Treat, or Zombieland? It's pretty clear which one it is, but hey, maybe fans for one of the other movies are going to pull it out here in the last couple days. We're going to be giving you that horror movie review in October on the main feed at NowPlayingPodcast.com. So head to NowPlayingPodcast.com and click the link at the top of the page. couple more days to go. I voted for Trick or Treat. I didn't really have a horse in the race, but I ended up voting for Trick or Treat as well. I'm abstaining. I'm happy to review any of them. They all feel like movies I'd want to talk about. So may the best one win. May the one that people want the most be what we talk about. And also, speaking of movies we want to talk about, don't forget our donation series is still going on. Our fall donation series, Romero's Living Dead Films. This Friday, we get into the 21st century with Land of the Dead. When you're at NowPlayingPodcast.com, click the banner at the top. You can find out the details on how to hear our reviews and support our show for all the shows we do. This show here we're putting out for free, we're able to do because of donations to the show. So if you head to NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find out how to donate, how to hear either all six Romero-directed Living Dead films or those plus the three official remakes of the Living Dead films or every podcast we've ever done, including every previous donation series. All those details are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Now Playing will return with Octopus. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now playing James Bond retrospective series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Talk here, listen here. 
So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, James. The links to our social media pages can be found at NowPlayingPodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. M really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. You'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. That's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond retrospective series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. And this is Arnie, the co-host of Now Playing, who podcasts for your ears only. For your ears only. Oh, that was so sweet, Arnie. That's like a Hallmark card. I do not podcast for feet. Oh. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a downer. Well, this... <laughs> Shoot and the bald hat and the bald hat. The I just am more captivated by her screen presence than I was in yeah. with uh, what was the hell her name? Ringo Scar's chick, Catherine, Catherine Buck. Yeah, or, Barbara, Barbara, Barbara Buck. Yeah. Barbara Buck. Yeah. I did it again, Catherine Buck. Yeah, that wasn't the Cuban <laughs> guy, but yeah. Oh, who was it? It was just it was a henchman. henchman yeah. uh, I thought a henchman of the Cuban guy, right? Yes. yes. So it could have been a Cuban henchman. Probably not in Greece, but yes. Okay. When the henchman goes up to the car... I'll fix it. I'm editing this. Well, hold on a second, though, but it's not Greece either. It's supposed to be Spain. He's supposed to be Spanish, not even Cuban. Oh, really? They're supposed to be in, they're supposed to be in Spain at that moment. They shot it on the other side of the island of Corfu, but it's supposed to be Spain. Oh, I didn't yeah, realize. I, they I, okay. They didn't, they're not clear about it. It's not your fault. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't think you need to say where they're at. Just say that when he breaks into the compound. I just said the henchmen yeah. and the car, yeah, yeah. so yeah. we're good. Yeah, cut everything out. I just said two anyway because yeah. they had olive trees anyway. They had, they're supposed to be in Spain, but they have olive trees. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but Did you see Jeremy Bullock in there? He's back? He's the guy with the arm cast, I believe. Isn't this the one, or is that the next Jim one? Jim J. Bullock? No, no, uh, Jeremy Bullock. <laughs> <laughs> what the and hell? Cosmic what the hell? And what are you doing here? And Tammy Faye, too, you know. <laughs> yeah, Jeremy Bullock so is ever. here. Jeremy Bull- I believe Jeremy Bullock yeah, is Yeah, this in is the-, the one with the arm cast, so... Yeah, so- Did you guys know who the Contessa is in real life? Here's a cool piece of trivia. No, I don't. She's Pierce Brosnan's first wife. Oh, wow. How cool is that? So Brosnan visited the set, and they all kept him in the back of his mind. We'll get there. But she was his first wife who passed away of cancer in the early 90s. Oh, wow. Did not know. Yeah, the early 90s were a sad time for Pierce. Lost a wife and did lawnmower man. We'll get there, too. Of course, no Charles Dance. My good real the moon. My good dear brother. <laughs> and you only look the twice. answer. See that last part again, then I'll say my answer for you. And you only so look twice. And you only. And it's a real. Uh, just give me a give me a clean one. And you only live twice. <laughs> it. 
and you gotta have him doing the nookie when maggot when maggot thatcher <laughs> <laughs> many of the british would agree with you yeah I mean, she is contentious um Now playing will return in Octopussy. In Octopussy or with <laughs> no. Octopussy? I was like, do I need a condom? <laughs> you might, but that's how it's that's how it's phrased, folks. Damn. I don't make it up, I just say it. But that's not what you've said in the previous podcast. With. I think it, I think I think and you've always said with yeah, until her. I feel like we return with or Yeah, you've always said with. Yeah, return an octopus. Wow. Supposed to be in. Wow. Supposed to be in. Right. I don't All return right. an octopus. I yeah. come an octopus. <laughs>